The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. In his book, Start With Why, author Simon Sinek shares that while most companies in their marketing schemes tend to focus on the what of their product, right? And you've seen maybe this a shift a little bit in the commercials. You know, used to maybe five, ten years ago, they did, you know, a car commercial, they would give you all the facts of like, man, this car has a 5.3 V8 engine. It has all this horsepower, all this torque, right? It will give you the what of the product. But now you're starting to see a shift from the what to the why, right? They, they're now sharing a story with you. Uh, but, so this is a bit dated. Uh, but in his book, it, Simon Sinek, he shares that while most companies in their marketing schemes tend to focus on the what of their product, giving out many facts and why their product is superior to others, he says the best companies, they don't start with the question of what, but rather they start with that question, why? He, he goes on to say that very few companies or, uh, or people can clearly articulate Why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And why should anybody care about it? He he cites the example of Apple by saying that Apple is big picture, technically no different from its competitors. Both Dell and Apple, they sell computers. But the genius of Apple is not that it communicates the what of its products, but rather the why, which is to challenge the status quo and to empower the individuals who use their products. In short, while most companies and while most people focus on the what of their lives, the true power for transformative change is found in asking and answering that question, why? Because while the questions of what and how they can give us knowledge and provide us instruction, only by that question, why, can we begin to understand the ultimate purpose motivation and end goal of something there, there's great power in asking that question why and so that's why our, our church you know if, if you were to ask okay what is our church about we would say that our mission the what of our church is that we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make mature and mobilize disciples of jesus and you would say okay that's great how, how do you do that Well, a little teaser, come next week to the potluck and I will tell you, Lord willing, how we are going to accomplish that mission. But that will only get us so far. That will get us a little ways. That might get us through the next two years. But what will sustain our church for the next two, five, 10, 20, 50 years until Christ returns is for us to stay true to and to answer that question. Why? Why do we as a church exist? And again, stay tuned for next week uh, for that answer. But some of the greatest insights that I have received personally when reading God's word have have taken place because I have asked the Lord that simple yet profound question. Why? Why, Lord? Why why did you do it in this way? Why didn't you do it another way? I think a lot of times when we read our Bibles, we focus on the what of the Bible, don't we? We, we, Which is important. It's vital that we understand the content of our Bibles. That's step one. But an entire depth to the Bible is opened up for us when we read our Bibles and we begin to ask that question, why? Because then we move from biblical content to biblical theology, from information about the Lord to intimacy with the Lord. And we begin to see, as Jonathan Edwards, as he once put it, we begin to see the end for which 
God created the world. And so while the past couple of weeks, as we've studied through the book of Ephesians, while we've looked at the, the what and the how of redemption, with, with God the Father appointing our redemption, with God the Son accomplishing our redemption, and with God the Spirit applying our redemption, and then through His redemptive work, how we have been set free from the penalty of sin, how we are being set free from the power of sin, and how one day we gloriously will be set free from the presence of sin. While we've looked at the what and the how of redemption, this morning we're going to see the why of our redemption. We will see where all of human history is trending, where it's headed, and what awaits us one day. And so with that being said, look at, look at with me verse 9. That first phrase where Paul says that God has in all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. And so it's as if our heavenly father you know, ushers us over tells us to come on over, and he whispers into our ear his grand plan for all of humanity. All of our lives, we are searching for the answers to the most fundamental and ultimate questions of life, aren't we? Why why do I exist? What, What is my purpose in life? What is the purpose of this entire universe? What does the future hold? Right? We we are asking these questions whether we know it or not. But listen, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, if, as our text says, if you have heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, if, and if you have believed in Jesus, then our passage says that you have been given wisdom and insight into the answers to every one of these questions. You don't have to guess that the sovereign God of the universe, your heavenly Father, he has disclosed his master plan for the entire cosmos, the entire universe to you. First Peter says that you have been given access to knowledge that even the angels, they long to look. They long to know what we know, but they don't. How, how many of you have heard the phrase insider trading? Some of you, hopefully none of you have ever been guilty of that. Uh, <laughs> But, but insider trading, it occurs when someone with non-public information about the stock of a public company, when they buy or sell that stock. In short, insider trading, it takes place when you're privy to information that others aren't privy to, and you act upon it for your own financial benefit and gain. Anybody remember Martha Stewart, right? That, that's what happened there. Or maybe, maybe, maybe pivoting a little bit, if it were legal, again, if it were legal, How many of you would want Elon Musk to disclose to you first before anyone else his grand plans and big developments taking place at Tesla and SpaceX so that you knew the perfect time, the perfect time to invest your money and then make a killing? How many of you would want to do that, right? We we would all want access to this information. We'd want access to this inside track. But listen, church, we have been given the inside track, not by Elon Musk or any other company in this world, but by the creator of of the entire universe to know the telos. And that, that means the end purpose for all of human history and indeed for the entire universe. Why would we act as though that knowledge were any less valuable than what could potentially go on at Tesla or SpaceX or any other company in the world? What a privilege we have been given 
that our sovereign heavenly father has brought us into his confidence. And he has shared with us his secrets, the mystery of his will. So you might be thinking right at this point, well, well, let's get to it already. What is the mystery of his will? What does Paul say is the mystery of God's will? That there is coming a day when all things will be united in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And that this day will occur in the fullness of time. And if you if you maybe have read through the Bible a little bit, you, that 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 phrase fullness of time it might clue you in on another part another part of the Bible where Paul uses this phrase in Galatians chapter four verse four Paul uses this similar similar language to describe the first coming of Christ when he says but when the fullness of time had come fullness of time God sent forth his son born of woman born under the law to redeem to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so Paul uses this language of fullness of time to describe Christ's first coming when he came 2,000 years ago to accomplish the first and central and decisive part of our redemption. And that's what we talked about last week. And that is to set us free from the penalty of sin and to forgive us of all of our trespasses through his substitutionary and his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And if those words seem a bit foreign to you, I encourage you to go to our website, listen to last week's sermon where we discussed what those words mean. But here in verse 10, in our passage this morning, Paul uses this same phrase, the fullness of time, not to describe Christ's first coming, but to describe Christ's final coming. When he will come back to this earth to judge the living and the dead to deliver his people from the very presence of sin itself. And when he will unite all things in himself by making all things new. I think sometimes, unfortunately, because of the influences, maybe of the enlightenment and other cultural forces that we don't have time to go into this morning. Sometimes we, we import some some uh, uh, enlightenment philosophy into our Christianity and we understand the gospel, God's work of redemption only in terms of our individual salvation, right? We, we've bought a bit too much into the Western's idea of individualism. And, and so hear me, the central piece of the gospel, the center of the gospel, its focal point is Christ's redeeming work on the cross to, to reconcile individuals to a holy God. Everything flows through and it depends upon the cross. But what Paul tells us here this, uh, in our passage this morning is that while our own personal salvation is, yes, the centerpiece and the climax of God's redeeming work, it isn't the sum of God's redeeming work. Or maybe, maybe to put it another way, hopefully maybe it's helpful, that, that while the central work of God's redemption is the cross, everything flows to and from Everything works toward and flows from the cross. The scope of God's redemption, it's cosmic. It's universal in its scope, meaning universal in terms of the universe. Romans 8, 19 through 23, it says that the whole creation, it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And we're going to get to this here in about, what, 19 weeks in our Bible memory. 
But but it, it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but in hope of him who subject, in, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul goes on to say that, that we know that the whole creation, it's been groaning together in pains of, of childbirth until now. But not only the creation, we also, Paul says, we also, we who had the first fruits of the Spirit, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, we, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, that's a lot of words, isn't it? What does that mean? In short, when Christ returns again in the fullness of time, yes, he will set us free from our bondage to corruption and, our, and, and he will free us from the very presence of sin. Yes, we will receive the redemption of our bodies. We will receive brand new resurrection bodies. Yes, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And he will do so for the entire cosmos, the entire universe. Because the entire universe, our earth, was tainted by sin, when Christ comes back, his final work of redemption will be to renew all things and to rid all the earth from the presence of sin. And so while our own personal redemption, it's integral in God's saving work, his ultimate work of redemption will be consummated, will be completed, finalized with, the, with what our text says here, the union of heaven and earth together. Or, or maybe again, to put it another way, just as both, think about it with me, just as both the divine and the human natures were united in Christ in his first coming, so too will heaven and earth be united in Christ, in his second coming. For when he comes again, he will conquer Satan. He will come to vanquish sin, and he will come to destroy earth, uh, destroy death, and he will come to make all things new. And in doing so, God's perfect presence will once again dwell with his people on a renewed earth, heaven and earth united together. This is what awaits us one day. Everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, this is the mystery of God's will set forth in Christ. It's the end purpose for why all human history exists. And so maybe you're thinking that's great, but that's way out there. Uh, why does it matter? For, what does it matter for my life today? Let, let me apply this a little bit for us. We live in a very fearful time, don't we? We don't know whether we're going to wake up to the news of Russia setting off a nuclear bomb in Ukraine and thereby triggering World War III. That's a very real existential threat. And then now with the emergence of chat GBT, GPT, we don't know what the unintended consequences of artificial intelligence will be. We don't know whether this next decade will be marked by stagflation and the entire economic system as we know it will implode on itself, taking all of our investments and all of our nest eggs with it. We don't know how the effects of climate change will continue to impact our daily existence. We don't know whether our children and grandchildren will be raised in a world where wrong is right and right is wrong. And we don't know whether we will wake up tomorrow. 
I don't know, to be very honest with you, right? We don't, I don't know if I will finish this sermon. I think I will. I presume I will. But there's no certainty that I will do so. We live within a world and culture of fear and uncertainty, don't we? But listen, church, while our world and our culture seems to be enslaved by this existential fear of the unknown, we as Christians are called to be a people who live with hope. Because though we don't know what the next chapter of our lives hold or how the next chapter of the geopolitical situation in our world will unfold or what the next decades will look like. Listen, church, we know how the story ends. We know how the last chapter of this book reads. We know that the future of our story and the future of the entire cosmos, it's not going to end with the annihilation of all things, but rather with the restoration of all things. We know this. Because God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth for us in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so listen, church, it is in this hope that we were saved. And Paul would say he would go on in Romans chapter eight. He says this now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In the fullness of time, at the right time, Christ Jesus, he will come again to prepare the inheritance of his people, the unifying of all things. And that will lead to God's perfect presence, dwelling with God's perfected people in God's perfect creation. This is our future, and this is our hope as Christians. And so we know this is going to happen because, number one, right, we see it in our text right here. God has made known to us the mystery of his will in his word. Do you want to know the will of God for your life? How many of you want to know God's will for your life? I do. Anybody else? God's will for our life is revealed to us in his word. You want to know God's will for your life? Read his word. 99% of God's will is found right here. And then the remaining 1%, he works it out as we obey his revealed will for our lives. We know this is going to happen because he has made known to us the mystery of his will. But secondly, we know this is going to happen because our text says, Paul tells us that he has given us his Holy Spirit. And so while time constrains us to speak at length, and maybe you're saying amen, but while time constrains us to speak at length on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, I want to highlight four reasons from our passage why God has given his spirit to dwell with us today. If you are in Christ, if you are in a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the spirit of God indwelling you, living within you. And so the first reason why God has given us his spirit He's given us his spirit to show us that God will remain faithful to his promises. All throughout the Old Testament, God had promised his people that he would pour out his spirit upon them. And listen, church, has, not, has God not been faithful to his promise? We have been given the promised Holy Spirit to remember that God will be faithful to keep every single one of his promises. 
But secondly, our text says that, that the Holy Spirit, it, it's a seal. It's, it, 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 it seals us, right? We have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal showing that we now belong to God. This idea of a seal, it's a mark of ownership. And so back in the Roman day, cattle and even slaves, they were branded by the seal of their masters in order to indicate to whom they belonged. But but while these seals were external, God's seal of us, it's not external. It's in our hearts. He puts his spirit within us to mark us and to show us Indeed, we belong to him. Thirdly, we have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Or, or, you know, that word, right? Verse 14, look at with me. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That word guarantee can also be uh, translated as down payment. The down payment of our inheritance. And and that word for guarantee or down payment, it's a Greek word that was used a lot in business transactions. To refer to the first installment, the deposit, again, the down payment or the pledge that that paid a part of the purchase price in advance. And then it was used to secure the guarantee of future payment. And so we might think of today, what what, what would be a good analogy for that today? A down payment of a house, right? So we we put a down payment, a lot of times very expensive, the traditional down payment, 20% of of a home price. We put that down to secure a loan and in effect say to the bank, we will be faithful to pay the remaining debt. We will be faithful to pay out what's remaining. It's our guarantee, our security to the bank that we will provide full payment in due time. And so the Holy Spirit, God has given to us the Holy Spirit as our down payment to say in effect, what you experience now, God's my presence and my glory that, that you experience now in part by the Holy Spirit, Listen, there's coming a day when you will get to experience it in full. Which leads us to our fourth reason why God has given us his spirit. And he has given us his spirit to give us a foretaste of what's to come. Not, not only is our inheritance guaranteed with the down payment, it's guaranteed, it, it is guaranteed because we experience the Holy Spirit's presence now, though in part. Now, granted, right, we don't get a full taste of God's presence on this earth because sin still exists within every single one of us. But but there are times when the Holy Spirit produces within us glimpses of the glory of God, right? Those moments when through prayer or through studying God's word or through worshiping with God's people, you have said before, God met me there. I, I can't explain it, but I was in the presence of God. And I have caught a glimpse of his glory. And we experience that because the Holy Spirit has been given to us to give us a foretaste of what awaits us. And when that happens, right, when when we experience the presence of God, when we get a glimpse of God's glory, there's nothing in this world that compares to that, right? Nothing in this world that compares to that. But get this, that's just a foretaste of what awaits us when we will experience the fullness of God's presence and his glory for all eternity. There will be no ebbs and flows of God's presence for us in heaven. We will get to experience it unabated and full forever. Paul Paul spoke of this uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 when, when he writes this. 
He said, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the meaning when Christ returns to unite all things in him, the partial will pass away. And he, then he uses this analogy of child and man. And, and, and when, you th- when he talks about child, think of it this time here on this earth, pre-glory. He says, when I was a child, I, I, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, when, when we enter into the presence of God's glory, I gave up childish ways. And he says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Now we, we do get glimpses. But Paul says this, but one day we're going to come face to face. He says, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The end purpose of all creation. The end purpose of human history. The end purpose of God's redemption. And the end purpose of your life. Is that in the fullness of time. When Christ returns to this earth. He will unite all things in himself. And so until that day. He has given us his promised spirit. As our seal. As our guarantee. And as a foretaste of what awaits us one day. But our passage, it, it requires that we ask one, that, that one question. What's the question we're asking this morning? Why? It, it, it requires that we ask the question one more time. Why will all things be united in Christ? Why will he do this? And, and you see this phrase repeated three times in this first part of Ephesians. He does all of this to the praise of his glory. Listen, we have been saved, not by chance and not by our choice. And again, we've talked about that a couple weeks ago. No, we have been saved according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so how were we saved? We were saved by the will of God. And so the beginning, the source, the origin of our salvation, it's God himself. But remember last week what we talked about, how are we saved? How is our redemption accomplished? It's through the blood of Christ. And so we're saved by the will of God through the blood of Christ. But Paul also teaches not only are we saved by the will of God through the blood of Christ, but we're also saved unto an inheritance of which the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. And so we have the Trinity at work to secure and to complete and to accomplish our Redemption. He is the source of our salvation. He is the means of our salvation. And he is the guarantee of our salvation. And so again, maybe to apply this a little bit. I, I know it's maybe for some of you, the question arises. How do I know that I'm going to make it to heaven? Can I lose my salvation? Right? Like it, there's this time, there's this uncertainty within our spirits and our hearts. And so we wake up every day. Maybe if I do enough good today, maybe I'll get one more day of, uh, of security and maybe I'll get one more day pleasing the Lord. And so maybe if I die today, if I live rightly, then I'll get to go to heaven. And listen, that would be true if, if your salvation depended on you. But what does the first a part of chapter one teach us does our salvation depend upon ourselves or does it depend upon our god he has elected us unto salvation he has redeemed us by his blood he has sealed us by his holy spirit and he will bring us to glory at the bottom of all our salvation 
is God himself. And in that, we can have certainty, we can have security that despite our sin, despite our, 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 our ebbs and our flows, beside our, our shortcomings or our successes, God holds our salvation in the palm of his nail-pierced hands. We won't lose our salvation because we don't keep our salvation. We are kept by God. Okay, I went on a tangent there. Um, but, but why did he do all of this? He did all of this. Why did he do all this? Many times our answer to that question, right? Why did God save us? A lot of times our, the answer to that question is because he loves us. And that is gloriously true. He loves us. In, in verse 4, we, write, we read that in love, he predestined us for, to himself for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He does this in love, but to what end? Why? For what purpose? Again, it's to the praise of his glory. The reason why you were elected, the reason why you were created, the reason why you were redeemed, the reason why you were adopted into God's family, the reason why you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the reason why you will make it to heaven is all for the praise of his glory. The ultimate aim, goal, and purpose of your entire life the reason why you still exist is for the praise and the adoration and the exaltation of this glorious God. The reason you have breath in your lungs and a beat to your heart right now is for the praise of his glorious grace. Do you believe that? Listen, if, if you just think this is just flowery language that the pastor is using to fill time in his sermon, then it will make little difference in your life. But if, by the power of the Spirit, by the enablement of the Spirit, your heart leaps with joy at this truth, and if you devote your entire being to live to the praise of God's glory, then listen, that's the greatest application I could ever give you in a sermon. Until everything in your life flows through the filter of, is this to the praise of his glory? Until that happens, you won't truly desire holiness. You won't truly desire righteousness. You won't truly desire to deny yourself, to take up your cross in sacrificial service to your king. But when you begin to understand the why of your existence, the why for the entire existence of this universe, you don't just receive a new perspective on life, but even more, the entire purpose of your life. It begins to become so radically transformed and properly reordered in such a God-centered way that now I'm not the center of my life anymore, but Christ is. He is the center and the purpose of my life. When you live, begin to live for the praise of his glory, your entire existence and his glory, they're so intertwined, inseparable and indistinguishable from one another such that he is life itself to you. Well, again, what we prayed earlier this morning, 
whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. David would say, my heart and my flesh may fail, but, but he is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And again, he would say in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Is that the desire of your heart? That whatever, come what may in my life, that my life is to be lived for the praise of his glory. Paul would put it this way in Philippians 3, that whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen, all everything I once had, I had the acclaim, I had the adulation, I had the praise of men. But all of that compares to nothing. It, it, it pales in comparison to gaining Christ, to, be, to being found in him and to being known by him. Listen, you don't seek Christ. I, I hope you don't at least. We aren't to seek Christ as a means to an end, to get on God's nice list so that we receive God's blessings in life. He's not just our ticket in to heaven. I remember hearing a former pastor describe Jesus in that way, that he that he's just our ticket into heaven. And he said something along the lines, have you got your ticket yet? And when he said that, I about leaped out of my chair in anger. Jesus, he's not just our ticket. He's not just a means to an end. Jesus, he is the end. He's the end of our entire lives. He's the end of this entire universe. He's the end for which why this world was created. It's the end of it all. So listen, yes, Jesus, he is the means of our salvation. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. There's salvation in no one else other than Jesus. We are saved in Christ alone or not at all. But even, even more, church, listen. We seek Christ not only because we get, he is the means of our salvation. We seek Christ because he is the end of our salvation. He's the, the, the prize and the treasure that awaits us one day. And so when that day comes, when the fullness of time comes, when all things in heaven and on earth are united in Christ, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul would say other, other, in other places. Listen, everything, and, and I won't go into great depth because I preached on it a few weeks ago, but everything about heaven, it will be glorious. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven will be glorious. But the best part about heaven, it won't be the streets of gold. No, that's, that'd be pretty awesome, won't it? It, it won't be the gardens of Eden. That's, it's, it's an Eden 2.0 everywhere you look. Like think about going to the Tulsa Botanical Gardens, like times a million in, in its beauty, everywhere you look, as far as the eye could see. But, but the best part, it won't be that. It won't be having perfected, transformed, resurrected bodies, bodies that are incapable of chronic pain. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Or disease, bodies that can summit the heights of Everest or, or K2. That, that won't be the best part of heaven. 
It won't, the best part of heaven, it won't be the jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring daily sunrises and sunsets that put any of the best on this earth to shame. It won't be that. In, in the best part of heaven, it won't even be seeing our Christian loved ones who have gone on before us. That will be glorious. I can't wait to meet my grandpa, my grandma, my great-grandpa again, to be united with them. But that's not going to be the best part. Don't mishear me. We will experience all of these things and more, and they will be glorious. But listen, brothers and sisters, the best part of, of heaven will be that moment when the book of Revelation, as it tells us, when we will see the face of Jesus. When that veil will be lifted from our eyes and we will behold for the very first time the one in whom is all our soul's delight. Listen, church, the one that we have lived for by faith our entire lives, one day we're going to see by sight. And when we see his face, that will be the best part of heaven. First John 3, chapter, uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 2, it tells us that, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. And when we see Jesus in all of his splendor and majesty and radiance, when we see him in the, it's an old timer's word, right? But when we see him in the refulgence of his glory, we will know that the entire purpose for the existence of the universe, the entire purpose for all of human history, and the entire purpose of our lives, it's him. It's all for the praise of his glory. And so that's why, church, one of our core convictions that I'm going to share about, again, shameless plug, next week, one of our core convictions is that as a church, we, that we would endeavor to live in light of eternity. To live in light of, as our text says this morning, the fullness of time. And so this morning, I'm going to end our time by asking you personally, pastorally and directly are, are you living in light of eternity are, are you living in light of the fullness of time when Christ will come to unite all things in himself is the purpose of your life to live to the praise of his glory what areas of your life have you not surrendered yet to Christ's lordship? What areas of your life is he not your central purpose? My, my prayer and my hope is that this morning you have seen that everything, everything in the course of human history is moving toward that day when all things will be united in Christ to the praise of his glory. And so I just want to end by asking, is everything in your life oriented to that same end. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.